China, China, the economic success story of our generation and a nation whose leader has announced a huge ambition for his nation. It is time, he said, to take center stage in the world. We have debated China a number of times at Intelligence Squared, frankly, as a rival to an America that likes to see itself on center stage. This time, though, we want to take on China's soaring status as a power across several dimensions. Its desire to be first in artificial intelligence, its use of questionable trade practices and espionage to get out in front of Silicon Valley, and its undertaking to create a new Chinese-made global economic infrastructure through which all roads will lead back to China. There is so much to discuss here that for this topic we are using our unresolved format. That's where five debaters, each flying solo, says yes or no to a series of three different resolutions, one after the other. In other words, instead of one debate, we are doing three right in a row. Our resolution, our topic is this, unresolved, the Techonomic Cold War with China. I'm John Donvan. We are here with a live audience at Symphony Space in New York City for this debate. Our debaters include the following, and please welcome them, starting with, ladies and gentlemen, Ian Bremmer. Ian, welcome back to Intelligence Squared. We yes, think sir. you may be our most experienced debater so far. You are president and founder of Eurasia Group and G-Zero Media. You are also a best-selling author, most recently of the book Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. Uh, Eurasia Group uh, annually publishes a top list of global threats. The 2019 list is out. There's a lot in there that we're going to touch on tonight. But one of the 2019 top global threats you listed is the U.S. at home, meaning what? Well, not related um, to tonight's debate topic. Uh, I guess I would say that the good news about being the world's most powerful country is that no one can damage us as much as we can damage ourselves. Turns out that's also the bad news. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Ian Bremmer. And please welcome our next debater, Michelle Flournoy. Michelle, welcome back to Intelligence Squared. You were Undersecretary of Defense for Policy under President Obama and the Principal Advisor to the Secretary of Defense. You have co-founded the Center for a New American Security, and now you have co-founded West Exec. What does West Exec do? So West Exec Advisors is a strategic advisory firm comprised of recently former senior officials from the U.S. government, and we advise companies and investors and tech firms on geopolitical risk overseas and also um, navigating the national security market here in the U.S. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Michelle Flournoy. Our next debater, please welcome Yasheng Huang. Yasheng, welcome. First time at Intelligence Squared. You're a professor of political economy at MIT. You're the author of several books in English and in Chinese, including Capitalism with Chinese Characteristics. You founded and now lead the China Lab and the India Lab at MIT. Tell us a little bit about what do you, what do you actually do there? Yeah, so it's actually a course at MIT Sloan School of Management. We use our very talented students to work with small and medium entrepreneurs in China and India. Uh, since its fun uh, founding uh, in 2008, we have worked with 350 uh, entrepreneurs in both countries. Okay, great experience for tonight's debate. Again, ladies and gentlemen, Yisheng Huang. <laughs> Next in the lineup, please welcome Parag Khanna. Parag, welcome to Intelligence Squared US. You are the founder and managing partner of Future Map 
Uh, that's a strategic advisory firm. You're a best-selling author. Uh, in fact, you have a new book out. Its title, quite relevant tonight, The Future is Asian, Commerce, Conflict, and Culture in the 21st Century. Uh, tw the 22nd version of what that book's about. Sure. Uh, the Future is Asian is a book about what I call the Asian system, which includes China, but also the other 3.5 billion Asians who are not Chinese, and how they're together resurrecting the ancient Silk Roads to create a new diplomatic and economic order, and how that's reshaping the, the world. Thank you, Prakana. And completing the lineup, please welcome Susan Thornton. Hi, Susan. Uh, you're a senior fellow at the Yale University Paul Tsai China Center. Before that, you were the acting assistant secretary for East Asian and Pacific Affairs at the State Department. You have been in the Foreign Service for 28 years. You speak a few languages, I understand, such as? Yes, I speak a few languages. I took French until I got bored, and then I started studying Russian um, in high school and college. And then I thought, uh, after I did done with that for a while, I'd study Chinese to be, make myself really miserable. And now you know why the FBI takes such an interest in me during my security clearance interviews. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Susan Thornton, and thank you. And thank you to all of our debaters for taking part. I, I, one more reminder to those of you who have arrived perhaps in the last few minutes and haven't yet cast your pre-debate vote. Uh, to cast your vote, use your smartphone, go to uh, iq2us.org forward slash vote using any mobile device. The three resolutions, the next Silicon Valley will be in China. The Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion dollar blunder. The US and China will both lose the trade war. You have the choice of yes or no on all of those. So let's get to our debate. The way that this is going to work is that each, we, on each resolution, each debater is given 90 seconds to make an opening statement supporting his or her position on the resolution. After those, uh, that round of 90-second statements from each debater, we move on to a round of more freewheeling discussion to dig in uh, more deeply. We are going to pick our uh, speaking order randomly thanks to these um, Intelligence Squared playing cards. Uh, the face of all of our debaters are on this, and I'm going to ask an audience member to come up and just randomly, anybody who wants to do this, I'm going to shuffle them and not know it. Don't be frightened, it's okay, but I do need your help. Thank you. Thank you. So, our first debater will be Michelle Flournoy. And you can wait on that. <laughs> Just a little bit of stagecraft. Our resolution is this, the next Silicon Valley will be in China. Our first debater on that resolution will be Michelle Flournoy. Michelle Flournoy, on the resolution, the next Silicon Valley will be in China. How do you declare, yes or no? I declare yes. You have 90 seconds to make your argument. I declare yes because China sees itself in a strategic competition with the United States, both economic and military, and it is doing everything in its power to eliminate our technological edge. China has a clear plan and is making massive investments uh, in cutting-edge technologies. Beijing's five-year plan, uh, its most recent one, focuses research and development on a number of technology areas, including things like aerospace engines, satellites, artificial intelligence, um, and quantum computing. Its annual research and development spending has increased by 71% over the last five years, and its defense spending has tripled in the last 10 years. It has established a doctrine of civil-military fusion, which means any advances made by private companies in China 
have to be shared with the Chinese military. And it's undertaken a massive and sustained campaign of cyber theft of our intellectual capital, our property, um, totaling hundreds of millions of dollars. If you look at its investment in the fundamentals of an innovation ecosystem, those are strong too. People. China has 4.7 million recent STEM graduates. That's graduates in science, technology, engineering, math, versus about a half a million in the U.S. Funding. China's share of venture capital funding globally is now roughly on, pa on par with that of the U.S. And access to data. They have 800 million internet users. I'm sorry, almost. Michelle, your time is up. Thank you. Thank you very much. On the resolution, and, we, and the way we go is to the left of uh, the speaker is how the order moves. And so uh, we're going to move next to Yasheng Huan. Yasheng Huan, on the resolution, the next Silicon Valley will be in China. How do you declare, yes or no? Uh, I declare uh, yes. You have 90 seconds. Yeah, not only do I declare yes, I actually know where that Silicon Valley is going to be located. Uh, <laughs> it is going to be in a city called Shenzhen, across from Hong Kong. I second very much what Michelle has said about these uh, developments at the national level. By the local level in that region, Shenzhen is actually very similar to Silicon Valley. It is an immigrant city. It draws talents from the rest of the country as well as from the rest of the world. We have had a number of uh, graduates from MIT who have started enterprises in that region, and they have done extremely well in terms of incorporating technology into uh, production. The other thing that we need to be uh, uh, mindful of is science and technology are a function of creativity, talents, and, and, and intelligence, but they are also extremely expensive and costly. At a time when this country is not investing in science and technology, somebody else has to do it. And so far, it is China that has been investing very heavily in science and technology. They are producing all these uh, great graduates. Uh, and then if you look at uh, IP, yes, it is true that it is a problematic situation uh, in that country. It is improving. But the other thing is that the new area is data. IP is not as important in big data as it is in other areas. I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank you very much. Um, our next speaker will be Prag Khanna. On the resolution, the next Silicon Valley will be in China. How do you declare, yes or no? Yes. 90 seconds. I vote yes, but I should have voted no because you got the tense wrong. China already has the next Silicon Valley, not will be. If you think about it, China already has half the world's most valuable companies. It already leads in augmented reality, artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, drones, mobile apps, 5G, and even bike sharing. Uh, when I pull out my iPhone, millennials in Asia laugh at me. They think it's garbage compared to the Xiaomi phones that they use that have 40 megapixel cameras, batteries that last for two days, and are actually waterproof. Proof. Um, they have the venture capital market, as Michelle mentioned, um, some of the world's largest IPOs. Last year, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange beat out the New York Stock Exchange for the number of IPOs. Uh, you have government support, of course, that was also mentioned. Just like Silicon Valley has its origins and support from the defense sector in the United States, so too, of course, does uh, China. The Made in China 2025 campaign is only going to accelerate in the wake of the trade war as they seek to protect themselves from any technology areas where the U.S. wants to cut off uh, supplies. Now, remember that Silicon Valley was primarily supported with American 
American money. But today, if you look at China's technology sector, it's supported by uh, global companies and even Japanese firms like SoftBank, which gave Alibaba its start and has also poured money into other Chinese companies uh, like Ant Financial. Sovereign wealth funds from around the world are also investing in Chinese tech. So why is China already the next Silicon Valley? Because both China and the rest of the world have made it that way. Thank you very much. In time, by the way. Thank you very much. Susan Thornton, on the resolution, the next Silicon Valley will be in China. How do you declare? Well, it falls to me to declare no. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you have 90 of seconds. Of course, I'm going to have to use some qualifiers because these are strong arguments. But uh, it strikes me that the U.S. has uh, gone in a 180-degree shift from being confident in our capitalist, market-oriented you know, innovation ecosystem to being very, very worried and afraid. And um, you know, we, we talked a little bit, Bob did earlier, about our systems differences. I think you know, Silicon Valley is not in California. It's not in China. It's a state of mind. Do you know that 75% of the tech workers in Silicon Valley are foreign-born? You're not going to get that kind of an ecosystem in China. You're not going to get it in Shenzhen. You're not going to get it in Zhongguanzhou, in Beijing, where all the universities are. Uh, China is starting to close down for its intellectual space. University professors are being told what they can and can't teach. Students are feeling more inhibited about what they can study. And I think um, there's still a long way to go for China to get to be the next Silicon Valley. They've spent decades trying to build an airplane and haven't been able to produce one yet. So there are limitations. There are um, problems, obviously, with the ecosystem there. Now, it's not to say that we should count them out. They're certainly starting to go further up the innovation ladder. I think this shows why the U.S. has to pour more money into basic research funding, and we should keep our country open to all kinds of foreign-born geniuses and not just stable geniuses. Thank you, Susan Thornton. One more opening statement to go on this resolution. The next Silicon Valley will be in China. Ian Bremmer, how do you declare yes or no? Yeah, I'm going to declare yes, but it's not because I'm convinced the Chinese are going to win. It's just because if there is a next Silicon Valley, it's obviously in China. Um, you know, you look at the big $1 billion startups, the tech unicorns such as they are, 42% of those in the world today are in the United States in 2018. 40% are in China. The rest of the world gets the remaining 18%. That's it. So it's pretty obvious, right? If you want to look at where the big technological developments are coming from, they're coming from the Americans and they're coming from the Chinese. Now, to be fair, a lot of that investment is not coming from the entrepreneurs in China, it's coming from the state. And the reason that they are getting advantages right now in places like voice recognition, facial recognition, as Parag mentioned, is not because they have better scientists, it's because they have more data. So it's not at all clear in five, 10 years, is AI and technology going to look like the space race, where it's a government versus a government, in which case China wins, or does it look more like all of these entrepreneurs doing moonshots, moon most of which fail, some of which are tremendous, in which case the Americans win. But whoever you decide to pick, the next Silicon Valley indeed already is in China. Thank you, Ian Bremmer. Now we move on to a discussion round of about 13 to 14 minutes, um, and in this round, we have four yeses and one no on the resolution. 
the next Silicon Valley will be in China. And the arguments basically on the yes side come down to the fact that having Silicon Valley being this kind of leader uh, globally is what China wants. It's what China is working on. It's what China is putting a huge effort into. It's what it's educating its students to do. It's what its entrepreneurs are working on. Uh, it's what their—it's uh, the focus of their theft of intellectual property for the last many years. The argument against, and that's coming uh, exclusively in this case from Susan Thornton. So Susan, that means you're going to be doing a lot more talking in this round. I guess so. Um, the argument against has to do, you say, largely with a culture that China is uh, is shutting down. Uh, its political shutdown is, I think, you're arguing basically is a deterrent to innovation and sharing of ideas and that and and that and th also statist economic top-down so so continue with that thought and let's let your opponents and your temporary opponents respond to some of what you're okay. saying yeah i mean so i think basically um you know we've been through this before with the end of history in 1991 governments trying to pick winners and losers and um that didn't work out too well i think the chinese have you know, come a long way in trying to develop and uh, marketize a lot of the parts of their economy, but they don't um, still have the ability to uh, support their bottom-up entrepreneurs. I mean, Jack Ma was was basically made to step down from Alibaba. If private entrepreneurs get to be too prominent in the Chinese system, they will not be allowed to go further. Private entrepreneurs have been arrested under the anti-corruption campaign. And there was a big um, article yesterday talking about many entrepreneurs in China who are trying to leave. And a lot of Chinese are trying to move their money out. So the political retrenchment that we're seeing in China is having an effect on the overall future picture for China's development. Let me let Michelle Flo and I respond to some of that. And I think basically the argument from Susan Thornton is that China is, is going to trip over its own feet on this. I, I think Susan's right in that to the extent that China's um, intent uh, to be become the technological leader is thwarted, it will be their, their own government's fault. It will be the government getting in the way of itself and of its own policies. Um, but I think that you know, we have had it in our mind that true innovation happens in our Silicon Valley. It's the moonshots. It's, it's having the benefit of the best research in universities, entrepreneurs who can go after something that nobody ever thought of before. It's that creative process of discovery. Whereas China has been excellent at the applications. Once something established, applying it in a thousand different ways and, and sort of making progress that way. But I don't think that stereotype is holding. If you look at, in 2017, the number of patents, uh, patent applications for AI-related issues, um, four times as many in China than in the United States. So there's some kind of shift going on here. And again, I agree, the biggest threat is the Chinese government's own policies to, that could undermine itself. But right now, in terms of intent and resources and momentum, China does have an advantage. Susan, your response to that? Well, they do have 30,000 engineers waiting to work in whatever plant moves over there. So there are some inherent advantages that they have. And like I said, they have managed to innovate. But they, I mean, I guess it maybe hinges on the definition of Silicon Valley. I mean, Silicon Valley is these moonshots. It's not this incremental innovation. And so I think there, you know, the Chinese say they have a built-in advantage of marketization and scaling. Mm -hmm. They want the innovation to come from the U.S., from Silicon Valley. That's what they talk about. And they'll do the scaling up. I mean, you figure out who makes the money in that scenario. I think that's something we need to worry about. But um, I do think there's a qualitative difference in the kind of innovation that you're talking about. And so I think 
Silicon Valley is not going to be replicated in China. Now, Shenzhen is a logistics hub for almost everything that happens in the tech sector, and that also can't be replicated in the U.S. So I'm very worried, actually, about this fragmentation, this techonomic cold war, which is the title of our, our piece, because I don't really see how these things can be separated. Ian Bremmer. Oh, look, I mean, first of all, you do have big companies like Microsoft and Google that desperately want to maintain, you know, sort of lab work jointly with the Chinese because they find that the level of innovation and cutting-edge support that they're getting there is very important. They don't want the Americans to be in a position where they suddenly cut that off. But the other thing I would just ask is, is Silicon Valley really as entrepreneurial and moonshot-like as it used to be? I mean, we're talking about some behemoth companies that are acting like functional monopolies. They're capturing the regulatory environment. Um, once they get poly, you know, real scale, then suddenly they start acting a lot more like hybrid state capitalist creatures. It's one of the reasons there's so much tech lash going on in the United States. So, you know, I, I think it's no question that there's extraordinary entrepreneurship and there are companies that are still being started in garages that were, have ideas that the Chinese aren't themselves developing. But if we really ask ourselves what Silicon Valley is today, um, I think it's not quite what we continue to do our, uh, our screenplays about. You're saying? Well, the, it, let's remember that the political repression is all on the social scientists in China. It's not on scientists and engineers and technologists. In fact, I would argue that Chinese scientists and technologists enjoy far more academic freedom than their counterparts in the United States. In this country, we face the problems of trying to do research in stem cell research, right, stem cell area. And in China, they have uh, just come up with a CRISPR te uh, technology application, genetically edited babies. I'm not advocating that, but this is an example to show that the political treatment of social science and political treatment of natural science are fundamentally different. There's a famous book called Lonely Ideas mm -hmm. that documents the inventions in the former Soviet Union. Soviet Union actually invented a lot of these ideas and made tremendous technological breakthroughs. What they failed to do was connect those inventions to economic development. China is able to do that, to do both the inventions as well as connections to economic development. I, I want to bring Parag into the conversation, but before we do, just give Susan Thornton, since you're the one on the barricades here, a chance to respond. Just if you could do it in 20 seconds to the points that you heard. Well, um I mean, I, I think I agree with, with Yasheng, what he's saying about the political repression mostly being on the social scientist side. But, but, they, but does that have impact? But, but I think there's still an effect of this overall controlling top-down mentality that the government has in the economy, in resource al allocation, in the system of local governments, in the tax collection. I mean, it kind of permeates the entire system. And, and what about Ian's point? Which it's not exactly on point, but I think it's, it's an interesting context, Ian's point that our Silicon Valley is not so wonderfully entrepreneurial itself? Well, I mean, it is true that Chinese work very hard, whether they're in social sciences or natural sciences, and we've, you know, we all have seen people who keep a bedroll under their desk in the office in case they have to sleep overnight. They have this 996 work schedule where you have to work from 9 to 9, six days a week, and you get one day off on Sunday. So that is a concern for sure. Barack. You need to step it up. 
I think there's, uh, building also on, on Ian's point, there's a more mundane story of how Silicon Valley got to be what it is. It's, you can't just summarize it as moonshots. What it is is a process where the first generation of entrepreneurs who generated wealth through successful companies actually shared that wealth with the engineers who they work with, and then those engineers spun off and started their own companies. And the genie is actually out of the bottle in China with whatever, taking into account whatever political repression there may be on social scientists more. The technologists have already moved forward, and you can see that happening with those that have left Alibaba and Tencent have now gone off to spawn five, ten other sets of companies in fintech and uh, you know, edtech and a whole bunch of other areas. So we can't really pretend that it's just about these you know, vertical conglomerates. And one, one other thing, the proof of that is the venture capital market. The global venture capital market is $150 billion a year, and China now represents an equal share of that to the United States. That simply could not be the case if you did not have hundreds of very wealthy Chinese entrepreneurs who came out of that first generation of companies now investing in the next generation. In terms of the innovation that a Silicon Valley in China would require, the, one of the premises of the trade war we're now in is that China has sustained uh, its progress on the back of intellectual property theft. My question is, does that dependence on intellectual property theft say that China is not yet ready to innovate on its own, or are we past that point? Um, Michelle, we, we are not past that point. I mean, it, the two coexist. There's still hundreds of millions of dollars estimated of intellectual property theft that continues to happen each year. Chinese entities stealing from American entities. That said, you also have examples of real innovation and real startups and creativity happening uh, funded by venture capital in China. So the two are coexisting. But the intellectual property theft has not stopped. It continues. But it doesn't mean that they don't know how to innovate on their own. It, it means that in some areas, um, they're getting a boost. <laughs> yeah. and, and they've had trouble, where they've had trouble innovating, they've, see, see, they've tried to get a leap ahead or a leg up by starting with some proven designs and, and plans. One, one of the issues that's cooking around this is that uh, China's uh, lead in artificial intelligence that it's working on and 5G comes with the idea that this technology is being deployed by the Chinese essentially to act as a system of big brother, to spy on its people. And my question is, does that kind of technology have a global market? Is there are places that are dying to have that? Or you would think that in this country, you would think in Western Europe that that would be anathema and that that would militate against China's ability to be its own Silicon Valley. Who would like to take that? There are places that are dying to have it. There's also places that are killing to have it, right? And that's, I think, part of the issue. Um, we've talked about how the United States and China have different systems in terms of who's able to develop technology. We haven't talked about how technology itself is changing. Let's keep in mind, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when you were talking about big breakthroughs in technology, you were talking about the communications revolution. You wouldn't have been showing the matrix uh, behind the screen here. You'd be showing someone on a smartphone and you'd show, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of people on Tahrir Square in Egypt or the Orange Revolution um, or the Rose Revolution bringing down authoritarian regimes. Today, when you talk about technology and advances, you are talking about enormous top-down, vertically integrated organizations, either companies or governments, and they're using big data to engage in surveillance. They're using that to make enormous amounts of money and also to ensure greater political harmonization mm. and, and, and their own top-down civic society. I think that is a place where the Chinese actually have a significant advantage 
over the Americans, and it, it, it is going to change the way we think about Silicon Valley. Susan Thornton, again, reminding people you are a sole no vote on this. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make the point that most of these technologies are dual use. Uh, we were looking at Yale at sort of the export of surveillance cameras and other kinds of systems to, to the Middle East and found out that most of the exports to the Middle East are coming from U.S. companies. There's a story out about um, police in China exporting uh, DNA sequencers. Um, you know, the police in China are using those DNA sequencers to um, find out that people who had been put in prison 20 years ago can have now been exonerated because they were not the perpetrator. They have a problem with forced confessions in China. So you can use them for good or ill. If you're using it in Xinjiang, obviously it's terrible and heinous and we should be very upset about that. But the technologies themselves aren't the problem. It's what the governments are doing with them and how you attack that. And I think that point needs to be clear because we have a lot of companies that are making similar types of equipment. But China is an authoritarian country, authoritarian society. If the government doesn't have big data, they have other tools to control the population. Mm -hmm. and in fact, if you look at the population control program, it was extremely effective and successful in terms of curtailing the fertility rate without any use of the big data and the technology. So I, I think this, this, this idea that somehow China suddenly has become a big brother country as a result of big data, that's just misplaced. Mm -hmm. It has been an authoritarian country for the last 2,000 years without the big data. And we also need to distinguish between access to data and the application of the data. All the applications of the big data have been the result of companies such as Alibaba and Financial and Tencent. But in China, the government has a special access to these data. So you can make technology available to other countries that have privacy protection, that have restrictions on the ability of the government to gain access to the data without involving the technology itself. Parag, can you educate people in 20 seconds on the firm Huawei and tell us how it fits into this argument? So Huawei, as many people know, has certainly origins and still strong links uh, to the Chinese government. It is a leader in, it is now has a largest share probably in the world of the global telecommunications hardware and equipment market, uh, but that only amounts to 30 something percent. And now that it's exporting those technologies and implementing and installing fiber optic cables, uh, internet hardware, uh, telecom stuff sort of all over the world, there is a pushback against it. At least five or six countries now have now banned uh, Huawei. Uh, from, from installing uh, that equipment in their countries. And there's so, so given its prominence and given what's happened to it, does that support Susan Thornton's opposition to the idea of Silicon Valley happening in China? Um, no, because it's not the only company in the field that China has. It's obviously the leader, but and we no longer even make, and this is one of the critical areas that where Shenzhen comes in in terms yeah. of hardware. It, the United States has almost given up on hardware in some of these areas, so only China Chinese companies even make some of the critical hardwares that relate to 5G technologies, or some European companies do as well, but not American ones anymore. Well, Huawei is the only company that makes every every single component of the 5G system across the spectrum. Right. They're the world leader. So, well, that, that actually concludes discussion on this resolution. Thank you very much, where the resolution has been, the next Silicon Valley will be in China. And a reminder of where we are, we have five panelists at this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, debating a series of motions on the tech, economic Cold War with China. I'm John Donvan, your host and moderator. Now we move on to our second resolution. The second resolution, the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion dollar blunder. 
Also known as One Belt, One Road, this is China's push to create dis direct infrastructure connections between China and large parts of Eurasia, Africa, and South America. It is already underway, but will it pay off for China? That is the question we are asking. I'm going to again go to um, a member of the audience to choose a speaking order. Can, can you do this for me, please? <laughs> Usually people swamp the stage, desperate to play this game of chance. Thank you. On the resolution, the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion dollar blunder. Our first speaker is Ian Bremmer. Ian Bremmer, on this resolution, do you declare yes or no? I declare no. I would like to do this. I would like to give you an additional 30 seconds to explain to the layperson what is the Belt and Road Initiative. If well, you can do it in 30 seconds and then you get your 90 seconds on top of that. Well, sure, I could actually put those two together because the, one of the reasons it's not a trillion dollar blunder is because they've invested 50 billion so far and they've put out loans for 300. So, I mean, come on guys. I mean, give them a, few, give them a couple more years before they can make a trillion dollar blunder. Um, it is um, a, an enormous uh, set of strategic investments in infrastructure um, in countries around the world, uh, driven by Beijing. It is uh, not as much multilateral as its hub and spoke, and you could call it the Chinese equivalent of a Marshall Plan, except that democracy uh, is not uh, one of the driving pieces of conditionality. Um, no, I don't think it's a, a trillion dollar blunder, and not just because they haven't actually spent that much yet. First of all, it's marketing genius. You know, you go to Davos and you see a few heads of state. You go to the Belt and Road Summit and you see more than anywhere in the world except at the United Nations General Assembly. And they're all there to do strategy at the convening of Beijing who they want to write more checks. That's pretty extraordinary. Um, you see that there are um, lots of countries in the world that are willing to do more Beijing's bidding politically because the Chinese are the only ones that are able to do long-term strategy and put cash behind it. So, for example, um, I was with the, uh, I guess it was the Slovak prime minister the other day who said that he spends more time with the Chinese prime minister in the regular East European 16 plus one format of summitry than he sends, spends with most of his neighboring countrymen in his positions. And he, as a consequence, is wanting to align his country much more economically with the Chinese. Um, you're seeing how in Peru, um, they do about a third their business with the US, a third their trade with China, a third with Europe, but because it's the Chinese government, they're doing much more alignment with the Chinese as a whole. I, you put these things together and you see that it's an extraordinary, not just marketing plan, but a way for the Chinese to develop real political leverage around the world that otherwise they'd have a hard time picking up. Thank you, that was exactly two minutes I was counting to myself. Thanks very much, Ian Bremer. Our next speaker on the resolution, the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion dollar blunder, Michelle Flournoy. Michelle Flournoy, how do you declare, yes or no? I declare no. You have 90 seconds. Because I, I agree that uh, the BRI will enable China to gain a strategic foothold and influence in key countries. What's not yet clear is how successful they'll be, because there has been some backlash generated in some, in some countries. So let's start with the benefits. China has demonstrated that the model can work in places like Sri Lanka, 
Africa and Pakistan and Greece, and it believes that BRI brings them several benefits. Uh, first, new export mar uh, markets, promotion of tr uh, Chinese currency, tariff reductions, access to new trade routes, and most importantly, as Ian said, political influence. But there has been a backlash. A number of small, debt-ridden countries are now more concerned about the risks of signing up. They witnessed Sri Lanka, who was forced to give China a 99-year lease to a strategic port because of they could not pay their debts to Beijing. And so other countries now fear a similar face, fate. You've seen Malaysia, Maldives, Sierra Leone, Myanmar, and others Backed, backing away from BRI projects or trying to demand refinancing. So it's hit, definitely hit some, some bumpiness in the road. But the real problem is that the U.S. and its allies do not have an answer. We don't have a counteroffer, a viable alternative. I think one of the places we could compete more effectively is in the digital Silk Road, in working with our allies to offer an alternative to some of these Chinese companies like Huawei that risk creating um, intelligence networks abroad for the Chinese as opposed to true telecom openness and transparency. Thank you, Michelle Flournoy. On the resolution, the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion dollar blunder. Our next speaker is Yasheng Huang. Yasheng, do you declare yes or no? I declare yes. Yeah. Uh, um, so remember the question is whether or not it is a trillion dollar blunder. So it is a finance question. All I heard from my other two previous speakers, they are, talk they are talking about political payoff, right? So even though they say no, I don't think they answered the question. So the Belt and Road program is based on a false premise, which is that you need these massive investment projects to jumpstart economic growth. If that principle had been correct, the countries that today are at the top of the economic pyramid will be countries such as Egypt rather than England. Egyptians were capable of building big projects. Asian Chinese were able to build big projects, the Great Wall, the Great uh, Canal. The falsity with the that idea is that, in fact, if you look at economic research closely, the infrastructures happen after economic growth. They are typically the result of economic growth. And this is the devil of doing social science, because very often in social science, actually all the time in social science, two things happen at the same time, and we don't know which one is the cause and which one is the effect. Correlation doesn't mean causation. Much of, the, much of the relationship between infrastructure and growth is actually a correlation I'm rather sorry, than causation. I'm sorry your time is up, but I'm going to be coming back to okay. you because you're a yes vote. On this resolution, the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion-dollar blunder. Parag Khanna, do you declare yes or no? I declare no. Um, the Belt and Road Initiative really began well before it had a name. You know, we used to call it the Silk Roads. And in a way, the process of Asia knitting itself back together through this process of infrastructural connectivity across this vast space of, of Afro-Eurasia, it's actually called Europe, Africa, Middle East, Afri um, uh, and, and Asia, 
connecting, reconnecting, is really something that is as inevitable as history itself because it was interrupted basically by colonialism and the Cold War. And now with colonialism and the Cold War over, the Soviet Union collapsed about 30 years ago. Since that time, this process has been underway. It just acquired a name a couple of years ago with Belt and Road Initiative. But I've personally been backpacking through a lot of those countries for at least 20 years. So it's been going on for a long time and it's going to continue. In some ways, it's just getting warmed up. In fact, a study that the RAND Corporation did uh, looking at the trade linkages between pairs of countries that are part of Belt and Road said that it is win-win. Countries are winning and gaining from the trade intensity that is growing through the relationships. Citigroup, an American bank obviously, said that Belt and Road is moving away from just one-to-many, sort of whatever China wants, to many-to-many -many as everyone gets involved. And indeed, I think that China has succeeded more than it even anticipated. It's unleashed this case of FOMO, right, fear of missing out. Because now that China has announced Belt and Road, the U.S. has its USIFDC. Europe has its Asia Connectivity Initiative. Everyone is launching connectivity initiatives. Everyone is getting involved in infrastructure finance. And that's just going to make sure that the broader process of connectivity succeed, uh, succeeds even further. So my punchline on this is, you know, Beijing builds lots of roads, but all roads won't lead to Beijing. Thank you very much. And uh, again, to our final speaker on this panel in this round, Susan Thornton, on the resolution, the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion dollar blunder. Do you declare yes or no? I declare yes. You have 90 seconds. Uh, I think what we're going to end up with actually is a lot of bridges to nowhere. Uh, you know, the U.S. had a great idea, too, for connectivity. It was called the New Silk Road. It was supposed to connect Afghanistan with all these other countries in Europe and Russia. And we tried to do these projects, and guess what? No one would pay for any of them. And do you know why? Because they were dumb. They were dumb, and they weren't going to make any money. And nobody wants to pay for projects that are not going to make any money and bridges that are going to lead to nowhere. And a lot of these projects, a high-speed railroad from Beijing to Moscow, are you kidding me? Um, I mean, no one's going to be on that train. How is it going to make money? So the Chinese are going around writing lots of checks. Great. Um, again, it's, a, it's an issue of, you know, what system do we believe in? We have market capitalist economics because it produces efficiency. And this is not an efficient set of uh, projects. It's not an efficient set of financial investments. And I think the Chinese are going to end up wasting a lot of money. Thank you, Susan Thornton. So that concludes the opening round on this resolution. And now we move on to a more freewheeling discussion. The resolution being the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion dollar blunder. We have three no's and two yeses. The no's are saying it's not a blunder, that in fact uh, it's, it's well thought out, it's doable, it's feasible, though not necessarily easy, though there is some uh, backlash to it, that the commitment of the Chinese government to this is real and so is it's capable and it's playing a long game and has a lot of time and it can take a long time to uh, invest a trillion dollars well. The side opposite is saying it's basically uh, based on a false premise that you need to have massive projects to jumpstart uh, economic growth, that um, the, the whole concept is unfeasible, it's dumb, it's delusional, it's going to lead to a lot of bridges to nowhere. Um, Yusheng Hong, I cut you off at a point where I think you were going to continue to be quite interesting. So I'd like to give you uh, another 45 seconds to... Don't, don't raise you uh, already expectations. Were. You, already, <laughs> you were already deeply fascinating, but just keep going. No, I, I, well, I agree with uh, Susan. The Silk Road was a, uh, was a result of private sector activities, and the private merchants were trading uh, across uh, Euro-Asia. 
And whereas, whereas Belt and Road is a uh, almost a com completely a government uh, project, and uh, the Chinese economy itself didn't succeed because of infrastructure. China started out in the 1980s with terrible infrastructures. In fact, in developing countries, the most reliable measure is the length of the railways. If you look at China and India, India, because of the British rule, built a lot of railways. India had longer mileage of railway as compared with China in the 1980s. It was the Chinese economy that took off. China only began to build infrastructures in the late 1990s, after 20 years of the economic growth, which provided uh, savings uh, to the banking system, provided tax revenue to the government, and therefore the government was able to build railways and the highways and other so, infrastructure. So, you're so it's really following the economic growth rather than jumping start the economic growth. Let me bring in Ian Bremer. I'll come to you next, Park. Oh, okay. Um, look, I, I think it is the right strategy for us to criticize it is really stupid, since we obviously, as a government, are not going to otherwise be able to compete with it. Um, I don't think a lot of people are going to find that compelling around the world. Uh, number one, a lot of this is marketing, and it's effective marketing. Again, only $50 billion has been actually spent. It's like when the Saudis come over and they tell Trump, here's $100 billion we're going to buy in defense, but in reality, almost none of that actually happens. But it sounds really good. They can tweet it. That's part of this. So let's not pretend they're spending a trillion dollars. Secondly, do not tell me that politics do not matter as a give back for what the Chinese are spending. Politics matter I will tell you an that. awful lot. Well, don't, well, don't <laughs> expect us to believe it. I mean, you know, maybe at MIT that passes, but in most places, Actually, what you said at MIT will not pass. Okay, uh, okay. I, I didn't think it would, because they have a strong political science department at MIT, which you don't visit. Um, but look, um, no, the, the fact... They visit us. The, the fact... <laughs> The, the, fact, the fact is that the Chinese are deeply satisfied with the idea that three BRI participants in Latin America have switched their view on Taiwan towards China's more recently. The Chinese are deeply happy with the fact that the EU can no longer put together joint statements opposing China in the South China Sea building islands. Why? Because they're getting money from the Chinese. Those things matter for the Chinese, and they're very happy with the return on that investment. Security, Hamanboda port, Sri Lanka. The Chinese put some money in. The Sri Lankans weren't able to pay it back. The Chinese took it over. What does it mean? They can develop a base in Sri Lanka that they weren't going to get otherwise. Sri Lankans aren't happy with that. The Chinese are. Final point, even economically, they've done a few things right. Go talk to Mitsutakis, Kyriakos Mitsutakis, Harvard-educated, I hate to say it, economist, right, who's going to be the next prime minister of Greece. He would much rather work with the Americans, but the, the, the Chinese have invested in Piraeus Port in Greece. It's been on time, two specifications, it's created local Greek jobs, and they're now starting to invest in a broader urban center. Thessaloniki Port, it was the French, with a Russian oligarch, it's been a disaster. One other port that was going to be built by some American Greeks, they talked really big, never actually got it off the ground. Greeks want to work with the Americans, but they're stuck working Barack. with the Chinese. Barack, I want to give you a chance to respond to that, but also to, to come to this point. So the fact that the Chinese have this, this ambition, these plans, a lot of them involving ports, are, are, they, are we looking at a form of colonialism, and are we looking at a form of military expansion and colonialism? In other words, will they be building themselves essentially naval bases? 
Yes and no, in the sense that already China wants to protect its supply chains, right? It depends so much on commodities imports from the Middle East, from Africa, and from elsewhere in Asia. And therefore, as those trade networks expand, it wants to protect those uh, those, those supply lines. And therefore, it naturally wants to have not only its uh, you know coast guard there, but even you know naval vessels and so forth to protect those uh, supply chains in the ports. So you do see a bit of expansionism, but that doesn't make it a new colonialism because in the intervening centuries since colonialism more or less uh, passed or in decades, you have sovereignty, you have democracy, you have transparency, you have countries scrutinizing everything that China does and pushing back against it, which is what Michelle began to point out. So even if China wants to do something, like, for example, have submarines and warships and whatnot dock at Hambantota port because now they have a lease on it, guess what? They're not going to be able to do so because the political backlash is so strong. And you're seeing that backlash everywhere because it's not a colonial world anymore. Let me just make another point, though, uh, building on what Ian said. Strategic ROI is why they're doing this. In geopolitics, you learn about something called the Malacca Trap. The Strait of Malacca that passes between Singapore and Indonesia is the narrowest maritime choke point in the world. Not only China, but also Japan and South Korea depend on having all of their commodities flow through that narrow channel that they don't control, and almost all of their finished good export, exports flow through it in the other direction. So it is priceless for China. It is worth $5 trillion to have terrestrial corridors through Central Asia to reach the Middle East and to reach Europe. Okay. And they're I, keep on spending. We have not heard from Michelle in a bit, but Michelle, you would be the third no speaker in a row. So if you could abide a couple of minutes, I want to go to Susan to respond to what you're saying, and then you're, you'll be next. I mean, I think I'll, the question is whether or not the Chinese are going to benefit from this project. And I still stand by what I say in general, that these projects are not um, profitable, they're not sustainable, and they're going to result in more backlash over time. Uh, certainly there's political um, license that goes along with a lot of the things that they're doing, and that's um, you know, we'll see how that works out over the long term. It hasn't worked out so well uh, so far in Malaysia. It may not work out so well in the Maldives. It's not working out so well in Venezuela. So, I mean, we have to see. But these are things that um, could go either way. And in a lot of cases, with the sort of um, kind of throwing their weight around attitude that the Chinese have, it may not work out so well for them. But I do want to say that, you know, shipping by maritime route, so there's a belt and there's a road. Confusingly, the road is on the sea and the belt is over the Tian Shan <laughs> Mountains in Central Asia, and it's going to cost $50 trillion to send those trade routes through there, trust me. But um, on the sea routes, I think it does make a lot of sense for the Chinese to develop that, actually, if they can do it. And um, whether it's for military purposes or not, there is an economic angle there. Michelle Fornay. Look, I think the primary motivations for China undertaking this initiative are not economic. They are actually strategic and political. Strategic access to critical minerals and markets, um, alternative trade routes to get out of the Strait of Malacca problem, political influence that may translate into votes in support of their position on Taiwan or South China Sea or something else down the road. And in this current environment, sort of putting forward a new face. China is the alternative new leader to the United States that you can turn to and rely on for investment in your country, to be a force for good. This is, there is a ideological competition going on here too. So it's not about their economic ROI. It is about the strategic and political ROI. And, and Michelle, is that taking advantage of a perceived American yes, withdrawal? Yes, it's, it's taking advantage of the uh, perception that America is turning inward, that we are not as engaged, that we cannot be relied upon uh, to lead and to be a partner and ally. Rog. 
you know, I think if we oppose Belt and Road because we're not part of it, I think it's just part of this reflex new Cold War mentality that sort of says, well, we missed the train, you know, well, I guess we didn't want to get it on, on it anyway, and China's just going to screw it up. It's just not true. All of the research on Belt and Road projects as an aggregate point out that, again, it is win-win, right? So we may, our news headlines are going to point to countries that say, oh, well, that, that railway was too expensive, or that hydroelectric dam was, uh, you know, we paid for it with non-concessional lending rates of, you know, 5 6%. Let's renegotiate that. It doesn't mean that these countries don't need the infrastructure. And we chronically, chronically, and this is a point I'd love for you to respond to, Yashan, we chronically underestimate the demand for infrastructure. We think to ourselves, oh, let's just wait. The market will decide when it's necessary. Not true. When the first train started going from China over to Europe about three, four years ago, people started saying, people were complaining, saying, oh, well, it's full of goods from China that are going to be dumped into European markets. The Europeans have nothing to sell. They're never going to catch up, they're going to be empty. Within three years, the, the Europeans have mostly caught up, and they're sending lots of stuff back the other way. Most estimates of the trans-Eurasian trade volumes, which are $1.6 trillion today, put it at about $2.5 trillion by 2030, right? So in other words, there is going to be utilization of this infrastructure. And if you go to Kazakhstan, you go to Mongolia, you go to lots of countries that are part of Belt and Road, pretty much all of it, because they are joining it voluntarily, because it's not a colonial world. They're doing it because they want to. They're doing it because infrastructure and connectivity enhances their trade, it creates jobs, it diversifies their economies. Yes, Shen. Yeah, so the, the railway shipment is four times as expensive as uh, shipment by sea. So it's, I, I recognize the point you made, it's not going to be a major uh, transportation mode. I think it's, it's interesting to, to, to hear the comment, $50 billion is a small amount of money. Um, actually, for China, if you look at China's GDP, second largest in the world, on a per capita basis, it's right in the middle of the 198 countries in the world. It's, it's a middle uh, uh, kingdom, middle income country. It's right in the middle, right? So we're not talking about a rich country. It is a middle income country shelving out $50 billion here, $50 billion there, sooner or later, it's going to be a $1 trillion investment. So I'm not going to trivialize $50 billion. Uh, at the same time, when China is doing this, 60 million rural children in China are left in the countryside without any basic education. There's an excellent book by Scott Rizal on basic education in China. Chinese government itself has neglected investing in rural areas, in public health, in, in basic education, and they're spending this largesse on, on, on other countries. So, so you're saying it's unsustainable? Friday? It's not sustainable because it's, 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 it's happening at the extreme expense of the domestic investments okay, in public health and public education. I want to let Ian Bremer respond to that point. Uh, a lot of Americans focus on Flint, Michigan and say that how can we possibly be putting aid out internationally when we're allowing people to not have uh, water uh, that's clean uh, in our own backyard. Uh, and I think the answer is that we can actually walk and chew gum at the same time. And the Chinese have been saying, oh, we're poor, we can't do anything. Fact is, they're the second largest economy in the world. They're about to be the largest economy in the world. They've gone from extreme poverty to a middle-income country right now. There's no question that there are a lot of people in China that are suffering. 
I would argue that a lot more of the suffering in China still happens at the hands of political decisions than it does because of economic incapability. Look at Xinjiang. The Chinese government as a whole is not particularly sympathetic to either of those conversations, but that's not really what we're talking about here. We're not saying, will they spend the 50 billion on these investments to have more strategic and political leverage as opposed to um, being able to take care of those folks. As a, I mean, let's face it, um, it's like asking the Americans, what are we gonna do with our defense budget? Oh, let's spend on education instead. I, th that, is, that is not the conversation that's no, really no, happening here. That's, 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 that's have to be the trade-off between investing in science and investing in education. I'm talking about investing in projects that clearly do not have economic returns vis-a-vis -vis investing in public health and public education. But don't confuse Shenzhen in this uh, discussion. Shenzhen gave tremendous rewards in economic terms to China. Massive investments in science and technology are going to produce entrepreneurship, produce GDP growth in a way that Belt and, uh, and Road does not. So, Parag, I'd like to ask you, show me one situation in which, in the past, the Chinese shipment has been threatened by some sort of external force that justifies uh, 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 port controls and strategic operations of, uh, of, per, of ports. Parag, I'm going to have to let that stand as a rhetorical okay. question because we're out of time and we've completed <laughs> debate on this topic. Or is there an audience demand to hear an the answer to that question? All right. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. If I can. Yeah, go for it. But then Again, we have to wrap it up. Belt and Road did not begin as a military venture. It actually began as a defensive venture in order to diversify transportation corridors, right? It turns out that every country also wants the same thing. As I said, in the last three years since Belt and Road was announced, Europe has announced its Asia Connectivity Initiative. Japan and India have announced their connectivity corridors. The United States has created a U.S. International Finance and Development Corporation. If China were to retract money from Belt and Road in the sense of this trans-Eurasian networking and connectivity and trade corridors, everyone else would still want to do it in order to trade with each other. So the volume of capital is going to grow, and the proportion of that total capital that is Chinese is going to decrease. It's not just about who trades with China. There is north-south Silk Road and connectivity corridors well, from India to Russia and other countries. Yashen, was your question answered? I, I don't think so, because, because, well, maybe Ian justified the Belt and Road by citing the Sri Lanka example where the Chinese uh, acquired the custodianship of a port, right? The argument there is this is military and strategic. You have to show me the case where the Chinese trading has been threatened uh, by, okay. by Indian Navy or by Sri Lankan uh, You actually Navy. just have to ask yourself whether if you were a Chinese leader, you would trust America's no. Navy to be protecting your supply well, chains instead in of effect, yourself. In effect, they have, right? <laughs> Since 1978, Chinese trade volume has increased dramatically under the Pax Americana uh, arrangement, right? Implicitly, they have done that. The issue is going uh, forward in the future, whether or not they should trust or not. That's a separate, separate question. That is a separate question, and that's why we are going to wrap up this discussion on whether or not the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion-dollar blunder. Welcome back to our debate tonight. We have five panelists debating a range of resolutions. Our theme is unresolved, the Teconomic Cold War with China. 
We are halfway through uh, the evening, actually two-thirds of the way through, as we move on to our third topic. Right now, we are in the early stages of a trade war with China that didn't exist two years ago. The two presidents, Trump and Xi, say they are trying to reach a deal to call the whole thing off. The president, as we took the stage tonight, the president of the United States, as we took the stage tonight, indicating that he is pushing off a March 1st deadline. Uh, it's not done yet, which leaves open the question, if this trade war continues, who wins? Our resolution is framed this way. The US and China will both lose the trade war. Let's go to another and final random selection. Who is brave enough? Thank you. It's not that hard. Really. <laughs> Thank you. On the resolution, the US and China will both lose the trade war. Our first debater will be Parag Khanna. On this resolution, how do you declare, yes or no? I declare yes. You have 90 seconds. Okay. Uh, let's start with the ways in which China will be a relative loser. And for both China and the US, the further you look out in the future, I think the further this will become apparent. Some major shifts in trading patterns really predate the trade war, such as the diffusion of supply chains out of China. A lot of it has to do with the fact that Chinese wages have been rising. So multinational companies, whether American or Japanese or European, have been diverting their labor and their manufacturing work out of China into Southeast Asia for quite some time. Uh, Foxconn, for example, has done so as well. India last year got more foreign investment than China did. Uh, Southeast Asia got more foreign investment than, uh, than China or has for the last five years. And now, of course, China's industrial policy is alienating a lot of countries, suspicion of, of, uh, of Chinese companies like Huawei as well. So China is sort of being brought back to earth in that sense uh, through this trade war. Now for the US, the case is even more clear cut in terms of how it's going to lose because most of what the US exports to China can be substituted by others, uh, whether it's semiconductors that China is going to get from Taiwan or South Korea or Japan soybeans that it will get that it gets from Brazil and Argentina and even now Russia is growing soybeans um Airplanes, maybe China will stop buying as many from Boeing and will buy more from Airbus. Every day, Europeans are flying over to China and other Asian countries to convince them that they should not be buying American products. So just remember that America's allies geopolitically are not necessarily our allies geoeconomically because they're actually trying to undercut us and do more business with Asian countries, including China, and substitute us in those markets. So the U.S. will also be a loser from the trade war. Thank you, Prague Khanna. Our next speaker on this resolution, the US and China will both lose the trade war. Susan Thornton, how do you declare, yes or no? Yes, I declare yes. 90 um, seconds. I'm gonna stop being contrarian now. I'm gonna go with the flow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I think both countries are already losing the trade war. Um, I think we've, we've seen uh, diminishment of uh, exports in both directions. Of course, much more uh, bigger drop on the Chinese exports to the U.S. than from the U.S. exports to China. But a lot of U.S. Uh, industries have already lost markets to other foreign uh, market uh, sellers, as Prague was saying. Um, I do think, though, on a more optimistic note, that if we can pull back from this trade war and get some kind of a deal, there is a possibility uh, that both sides can win. Uh, as I've already mentioned during uh, tonight's uh, discussions, China is in a period of retrenchment of re from reform. 
And it, it, and most Chinese, they, they, there's a joke going around in China now, who are two old guys who are gonna push China into the modern era? Deng Xiaoping and Donald Trump. They want Donald Trump to push China as hard as possible to reinvigorate its economic reform program because they know that the Chinese economy needs to move to the next stage of opening up in order to make that leap out of the middle income trap that they're so worried about being stuck in. Um, I think um, you know the U.S. obviously would benefit if we could get a deal with China that would open up some of these areas of China's market to U.S. companies, and I think the rest of the globe would also benefit from some kind of a deal that we could get as long as we get some progress on these structural issues. Thank you, Susan Thornton. On this resolution, Ian Bremmer, do you declare yes or no? I'm going to declare no. Um, this is the most complicated, I think, of the three questions. Um, it's the one that you'd want to say it's complicated in a Facebook kind of way in response. Uh, I, I'm going to say no in both the cute way and a real way. The cute way, I'm going to say no because it's not happening. I don't think there's going to be a trade war. I feel very strongly um, that the Americans and Chinese, for different but overlapping reasons, are going to back down uh, Trump because he doesn't want it to affect the American markets and it hasn't really, except for a little scare in December, um, and because he wants to show that he personally can do a big deal. And the Chinese, because actually their economy's gotten a little bit more vulnerable and Xi Jinping doesn't want this fight right now. Um, and broadly speaking, I think that if we look at the damage that's been done so far, um, you talk about still a broad environment where the US and Chinese economies were very interdependent, they still are. China's becoming gradually a larger economy than the US, but still very far behind on a per capita basis. That's still the case. And going forward, yes, we're seeing growth slow in both China and the United States. In China, that's because of debt deleveraging. In the United States, that's because of the Fed and the end of the tax cut stimulus. So, I mean, if you ask me to really make a strong call here, are we both gonna get hurt by this trade war? I think the answer, at the margins, I think I'd say yes, but overall, I think I'd say no. Thank you, Ian Bremmer. Our next speaker on the resolution, the US and China will both lose the trade war. Michelle Flournoy, do you declare yes or no? I will declare yes. Um, given the interconnectedness of the two economies, it's really not possible for either country to win a trade war should it continue. Restrictions on trade end up resulting in increased prices and decreased exports for both countries. The trade war is already hurting both. In China, in 2018, we saw the lowest uh, Chinese GDP growth um, that we've seen in quite in, in a number of years, really since 1990. Now, the trade war wasn't the only factor, but it was a contributor. Demand for labor in the Chinese import-export sector has fallen by 40% um, in the last quarter of 2018 compared to a year earlier. And there's starting to be some hurt in the U.S. economy, uh, too. I think if these tariffs were sustained into the future, there's projections uh, that you'd see reduced U.S. exports, decreased GDP, and also elimination of substantial number of American jobs. But I think the real question is, you know, the U.S. does need to challenge China's unfair trade 
practices, whether it's restrictions on market access, theft of intellectual property, subsidies, uh, extraordinary subsidies to state-owned enterprises. But the tariff war is the wrong way to go. If we were to do this in the right way, the U.S. would go out to all of the other countries in Asia and Europe that have the same issues with China, and we would lead the formation of a coalition to come together to press China uh, to make structural reforms. That's the right way to approach this. Thank you, Michelle Ponay. And uh, finally, Parag Khanna on the resolution. Do you declare yes or no? I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, Yisheng Huang. On the resolution, declare yes or no? on that, too. Yeah. Sorry? I have a view on that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you declare yes or no? I declare yes. Yeah. Uh, one thing I worry about is that the trade between China and the United States has acted not, as a, not only as an economic engine of uh, relationship between the two countries, but also as a basis of political and social relationships between the two countries. Once you undermine that pillar, other relationships are also going to suffer, right? So that, that's, that's, and both of them are going to suffer. Uh, it's fairly easy to argue why it is hurting China. Uh, trade as a percentage share of the GDP for Chinese economy is about 40%, a little bit shy of 40%. For the US is only uh, 26%, so it's hurting China. Uh, export uh, is a very important part of the Chinese economy. It also happened to be one of the most productive sectors of the Chinese economy. But we need to make a case why the trade war is hurting the United States as well. Uh, people mentioned about farms and, and, and agricultural products. One of the other channels uh, in which the tra trade with China has helped the United States is through lowering the cost of living for the Americans, right? People tend to think about Chinese uh, uh, trade, Chinese uh, imports as hurting jobs in the United States. True, there's some of that, but it is also lowering cost of living for poor Americans, right? There's a book uh, called Made in China in which the author tried for one year uh, live on products not made in China, and she found it extremely difficult, right? Okay, I'm sorry I have to cut you off uh, on the opening round. That include, concludes our opening round on this third resolution, and I want to go, since we have four yeses and one no, and that no is Ian Bremer, I want to go back to you, Ian Bremer. As you said at the beginning, uh, this might be the most nuanced of the uh, three resolutions that we're debating, and as part of the nuance there, I think there's a little bit of ambiguity in the resolution in that it says that both the U.S., and China will lose the trade war. Are you arguing that neither the U.S. will lose the trade, or China will lose the trade war, or that one of them won't? Lose um, the look, they both I, won't, or one of them won't? I, I, I'm first of all arguing that they both won't. Um, I, I think that the, um, the Americans, there are lots of ways to cut it. Right now, I think Trump's backing down, but if you'd gone the Bannon route, where when he was chief strategist in the White House and he said, look, we're going to come to blows with the Chinese eventually, but we're more powerful than they are now. If we wait for five or 10 years, it's going to get a lot harder. We've got to hit them really hard. I think if that had been the strategy and the Americans did it, as Michelle suggested, with the Europeans, with the Japanese, join TPP, really you know, put together the strongest possible case, I think the Chinese would have backed down because they would recognize this was going to hurt them an awful lot. Let's keep in mind, you know, war games, thermonuclear war, the only way to win 
is not to play, right? I do think the Chinese are strategically smart about this. So ultimately, you know, they made some mistakes. Xi Jinping, the fact that the Chinese were always saying we're not ready to be leaders, Xi Jinping came out of the box pretty hot and he said, no, I'm gonna be a leader and we're gonna be the leaders in free trade. And by the way, I'm even gonna be a leader for life. So I'm gonna get rid of all term limits. I think that was strategically a mistake for them. And I think that now that they've seen that the Americans are a little unpredictable and willing to potentially hit them hard in ways that every single one of my co-panelists have admitted, this is hurting the Chinese economy, they're not gonna play. And as a consequence, we're just not gonna have a trade war. And I, I think it's important that someone on the panel says we're not gonna have a trade war. Does the other four of you agree that we're not gonna have a trade war? Parag? I think we're perpetually in some kind of a trade, you know, there's competition, right? I call it tug of war. We're always competing to have the largest share of the supply chain or value creation within our shores, employing our workers, uh, generated by our companies with our IP or that we've bought, borrowed or stolen uh, from others or built ourselves. That's a constant struggle. It's not something that begins just because a president says, I'm going raise to raise tariffs here or raise tariffs there. Even when you're having tra trade negotiations, you're having that struggle over you know, the various regulations involved in them. How much do you have to protect IP? What scale of subsidies are allowed? And that kind of thing. That's a perpetual thing. It's obviously now just being escalated. It could also be de-escalated. But to me, it's a low-level struggle that is, that is ongoing. And even if you have a resolution next week, let's be perfectly clear, it still continues. Because whatever hiatus or pause or reform uh, the Chinese may offer, uh, it's going to be very slow to implement. And they're going to make sure that they've locked in benefits to them but in certain sectors before they actually open those sectors. So it continues even in, when not in name. Susan Thornton. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think the American people agree with you, Ian. They don't think there's going to be a trade war, and I hope that they and you are right. Um, but I do think that, that we are in some kind of a tech war. And I think that's going to go on long after this, whatever the deal is. And I agree with you, Parag, that it's going to be very hard to verify the good parts of a deal, assuming that we get them. Um, but I think the tech war part is going to keep, keep going. And I, I think we will see some fragmentation of the internet. I think we will see a lot of um, tug of war over this, and that will continue to have knock-on effects for both the U.S. and the Chinese economies, and it will continue to produce a lot of uncertainty for business. Michelle Forney. You know, I look at this through the national security lens, and one of the things that I worry about in the, in the talk of a trade war is feeding kind of hardliners on both sides. So there are now Chinese uh, folks uh, who are very much talking about the U.S. is trying to contain China. Therefore, we should see the U.S. as an adversary, and we should disentangle. They want to disentangle, fine. We will disentangle, and we will compete and win. And you have others on the U.S. side who say, we've got to disentangle on our side. One of the ways that you deter this competition for becoming open conflict in the future is you make it too painful for both sides to ever go to war with each other. And that's by staying engaged and recognizing that we do have interdependencies that we should actually um, manage. Uh, we, have to, we have to fight for our interests where they're violated, but you don't want to disentangle. It's not possible, nor is it wise. You have to use interdependencies to try to prevent the competition from becoming conflict. Okay, with four yeses and one no, Ian Bremmer, again, you're the no. I saw you nodding a lot when Michelle was speaking, so you're agreeing with her? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I am, and I'm also agreeing with Susan, but let, let me be clear. I mean, if the resolution had said um, that neither side can win a tech war, then I would have flipped it, um, but since it actually said trade, then Susan should flip hers. Um, <laughs> and, uh, look, I, I, I think that one question that we haven't asked, right, is what does it mean to win or lose a trade war, right? Because when we talk about wars, we kind of know that in any sort of war that it kind of usually does hurt both sides, but we usually still do talk about winners and losers. You know, in World War II, the Brits didn't certainly feel necessarily like winners coming out of that, but they did actually win um, with the United States and others. And, and I guess I would say if we, I don't think we're gonna end up in a knockdown, drag out trade war with the Chinese. But if we did, oh, it would hurt our economy but I think we'd win, right? I mean, as the world's largest oil producer and food producer with the world's only global reserve currency and a geopolitical environment that actually is quite stable and a representative democracy that doesn't work super well but is a lot less brittle than Xi Jinping as president for life and no rule of law, um, yeah, if we really decide to get into it, right? If like the entire administration becomes Steve Bannon as the <laughs> As a, as a multi-layered Borg, right? Because you've seen him do that. Um, yeah, I, I think that the Chinese lose that trade war. Yes, I do. I don't know. I think the rest of the world, I mean, we, you, you're assuming that everyone else in the world lines up with us. I, and, and I'm no, not sure that that would be the Japanese and a bunch of, and, and I mean, the I don't know. You know China's Mexicans the number the one trading, trading partner yeah. for every single country yeah. in Asia. And by the way, in Japan. And it's very important yeah. for them. You know, Brooke, all the, we, when, when the U.S. pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement, which, by the way, we created, right, architected and then walked away from, uh, every other country decided to go ahead and join it, including the Canadians, Mexicans, and so forth. We already have data, even just for one, one quarter or, or, or half a year, showing how other countries are eating away at America's market share in those countries. And crucially, because you mentioned the Japanese, when we are now trying to push for a bilateral FTA with Japan, they're saying, yeah, you know what, why don't you just come back to the TPP framework and let's do it that way. So trade with China matters a lot to almost all of these countries. And we didn't mention one of the winners because it's relative gains and losses, not absolute. But again, Europe, right? You know, Europe is going to be, uh, whether it's aircraft, industrial goods, technology, the stuff that China and other Asians feel is now politically volatile, that the U.S. could import, impose export controls on at any time, like semiconductors and other sorts of things, it's just not, they're just not going to buy them from America anymore. They're going to buy them from Europeans and other Asians. You're saying, Ian raised the question that we haven't really defined what's winning and what's losing, and he did actually come up with a sort of uh, extreme case of winning. But, but if the U.S.'s goal is to get China to open markets, to stop stealing intellectual property, and that were to happen, would that not be a win? For, 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 the, for the United States? Mm -hmm. for the, I think in the current state of the trade war, China loses more than the United, than the United States. If we go all the way to the, to the, to the, to the total trade war, uh, you, China is gonna win. Remember, this is a country that went through uh, cultural revolution and great leap forward and survived uh, those economic catastrophes. If you fight extreme wars, uh, the Chinese political system is going to come out uh, at the top, just because they have this uh, capability of uh, withhold, uh, withstanding massive uh, economic uh, shocks. But I want to say that the trade war has already translated into conflicts in other areas, and those conflicts are happening already. Today's uh, uh, debate is about Cold War. Two years ago, we didn't use 
Cold War to describe relationship between China and the United States. The director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, described the Chinese government as a threat to the United States, as well as the Chinese society. That means Chinese scientists, that means Chinese students, Chinese visitors. U.S. is curbing the visas on the Chinese students. The graduates from American universities cannot get the visas anymore. They cannot do research uh, uh, in the United States uh, uh, universities. They find it more difficult to do that than before. The U.S. is also restricting investments by Chinese companies in the United States, not just large-scale investments, but also small-scale investments in startups. Right? That's going to hurt the United States. So it, it's, it's always going to rebound on the United States. You, you're saying that, that um, if China suffers, the U.S. suffers? There's no question both sides lose, right? Well, it, it, Ian it, says there's questions. No, no, no. <laughs> if I heard him correctly, and maybe I didn't, if I heard him correctly, he said it's not going to happen. In that case, obviously, if something doesn't happen, then there's no consequence, right? So is that, is that what you said? <laughs> so, yeah. but, but if it were to happen, I think both sides would lose. Okay, I'm glad we could bring that discussion to such clarity on that point. Because, <laughs> thank you, because that concludes debate on this third resolution. The U.S. and China will both lose the trade war. <laughs> so now, uh, members of our live audience here in New York, it's time for you to tell us which side you have found most persuasive on all of these arguments. Um, it's complicated because there were three of them, and not everybody was making exactly the same arguments, but we want to know, on the whole, did you swing more to yes or more to no from your starting position? So if you can again go to your phones and uh, go back to uh, our URL. I'm just looking it up, iq 2 us uh, dot org forward slash vote and you'll be presented with a prompt to lead to the three votes yes or no and it will only take um, us a couple of minutes to tabulate that and tell us uh, which way things swung here but while you're doing that the first thing i would like to do is to uh, congratulate the five of you for being uh, really engaging um, for, this was not necessarily the most uh, uh, the, the lightest topic to take on, but you made it informative and interesting and educational and fun, and you did it with respect and good spirit and uh, with facts and logic. We like all of that. So for bringing all of that to our stage, I really want to thank you one more time with a round of applause from everybody. And also, while the results are being tabulated, I'd like to ask you a question that's tangential to, to the moment that we're in. Um, it has to do with North Korea. This is not for competition. I just want to hear briefly from all of you um, and President Trump and the, and the fact that we're on the eve of another uh, meeting between President Trump and uh, North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un. Will, in relation to the China conversation we're having, do you see this conversation, this meeting, impacting everything we're talking about in regard to China? I'll start with you, Prad. Yeah, yeah. Um, indirectly, yes. I mean, because I think if there is going to be, as a first step, and that's what people are talking about right now, uh, some kind of uh, step towards a formal declaration of an end to the Korean War uh, that involves North Korea, South Korea, the U.S., and, and, and China as well, that 
that plus, and I, because we don't really believe that there's going to be full denuclearization anytime soon, but each step they make towards reconciliation between North and South Korea is meant to squeeze the U.S. a bit more in terms of delegitimizing de or reducing the justification for American forces to be stationed there. And that, therefore, means potentially you could read it to mean uh, that China's influence is going to grow uh, as the peninsula stabilizes. Michelle, how about you? I agree with that, but I think as long as <clears throat> North Korea is clearly a nuclear power, they aren't denuclearizing, um, there's going to be justification for U.S. forces to remain uh, with our ally South Korea. Excuse me. And uh, Susan? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm very hopeful that this meeting will lead to something positive because I see on the world stage today that it's about the only place that we're still doing diplomacy, and I think we're getting a lot of global... Uh, positive benefits from that and our soft power. Um, but I do think that uh, China looks at the summit and is both both worried and uh, encouraging. They're worried because uh, they don't want us to go too fast. They don't, they don't want to be left out. But they are also, um, this is a big security problem for them right on their border. And so they would like to see things on a sustainable, uh, stable track, which they think this diplomacy will hopefully lead to. And Yashin? I think China will benefit if there's a understanding or agreement between North Korea and the United States. North Korea has been a complicating factor in the relationship between China and the United States. I think for Xi Jinping, he really wants this thing to go away. So mm -hmm. then he can deal with the United States on its own terms. But what do you think is realistic in terms of coming out of this meeting in the short well, term? Well, I think China probably has played a role, right? So uh, uh, the North Korean leader visited China a number of times, and, uh, and China has been, become more proactive in managing uh, the North uh, uh, relationship uh, and the policy positions to toward the United States. Uh, so I think China, China wants a deal rather than uh, not seeing a deal. Ian? I feel good short term about where all this diplomacy is going, but let's be clear that the North Koreans have only advanced both their nuclear and ballistic missile programs while this diplomacy has gone on. They're still engaged in human trafficking. They're still engaged um, in extraordinary criminal activity uh, directed at American banks and Europeans and all the rest. And that is a problem that we can paper over with a great summit in Vietnam, and Trump doesn't want to deal with the strategy behind it. But it is growing as a strategic concern for the Americans and for others in this region, and I think we should remember that. What, so, but why do you say you feel good in the short term for all of this diplomacy that's well, going Well, because on? the things that Trump is prepared to give away, I mean, the fact that, like, having a summit with Kim Jong-un, which other presidents would consider to be a big give, Trump sees that as something cool for him because no one else has done it before. Um, talking about stopping the um, exercises with the South Koreans, other presidents would consider that a big give to the North Koreans. Trump's like, that's expensive. Why are we doing that? Even potentially talking about reducing, at least at the margins, American forces in South Korea, it's fairly easy for Trump to make some gives that the North Koreans are going to be pretty damn happy about. And by the way, so will the Chinese um, that allow in the near term this to feel pretty good. But we're not actually fixing the problem. By the way, kind of analogous to the way we're going to feel about this U.S.-China trade deal um, coming in the next few weeks. 
All right, well, thank you on that. We're gonna have the results still. I had expected them by now, but I actually had something else I wanted to talk about. Um, I wanted to tell you what we're doing. Uh, we're right now in the middle of our season at Intelligence Squared, um, and next Monday, we're gonna be going to Philadelphia and partnering with the National Constitution Center there. We're gonna be debating what, uh, whether the First Amendment can save social media companies from themselves. Uh, for this one, we've got the National Review's David French, the Electronic Foundation, uh, Frontier Foundation's Corinne McSherry, Stanford's Nate Persili, and Mariette Schack, a Dutch politician and member of the European Parliament. Then on Thursday, March 28th, we're gonna be back in New York uh, with a debate on whether the Republican Party should renominate Donald Trump in 2020. <laughs> I guess we're in New York. Um, uh, two of the debaters on that panel will include Brett Stevens of the New York Times, who has debated with us a bunch of times. He's a terrific debater. And also from Arizona, Senator, former Senator Jeff Flake uh, will be taking part. Uh, <laughs> later on this season, uh, we're going to be taking on a bunch of other topics, including um, driverless cars, social geoengineering, and whether the transatlantic alliance has been irreparably damaged. You can learn more about all of these and buy tickets to our debates on our website um, right now. And the last thing I want to say, uh, I, I know I've already seen in the audience tonight a number of our supporters. Uh, I'm going to be meeting them afterwards at a reception. Um, I want to say how grateful I am to people who make gifts to Intelligence Squared because we are a nonprofit organization. Uh, we put on these debates, we create them, and then we put them out there on uh, television, on radio, on podcasts, as, uh, for free, basically, to the audience. And we have a very, very large uh, following through that mass audience, especially in the podcast realm. Um, as I said at the beginning of the evening, our mission, we have a philanthropic mission, and that's to um, restore critical thinking and facts and reason uh, and civility like we saw here tonight to Americans, uh, America's public discourse. And we think that debate uh, done the right way can do that, and we think we're doing it the right way. So um, we, we would love to include uh, more of you as members of our, of our community through support. Uh, if you're interested in becoming a friend of our program, uh, that gets you tickets to our debates and also uh, to post-debate events like dinners and cocktail receptions with me and other members of our community. Uh, please consider it for real, and you can visit iq2us.org to do that. Um, and there's also information in your programs about making a gift to our organization. So that's the end of the commercial, but the thing is I really mean it, so please give it some thought. Um, so I do now have the results of the votes. Um, remember, you voted twice on all three resolutions, and what we're looking at uh, is the swing from one side to the other. So on the first resolution, which was the next Silicon Valley will be in China, before the vote, 55% voted yes and 45% voted no. The vote afterwards, 69% voted yes and 31% voted no. On that one, we see a swing, big swing toward the yes side. On the second resolution, the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion dollar blunder. On the first vote, 34% voted yes, 66% voted no. Afterwards, 39% voted yes, 61% voted no. Again, a swing toward the yes side of 5%. And finally, the US and China will both lose the trade war. Before, the vote was 40% the uh, for yes, 60% for no. Afterwards, the vote was 49% for yes, 51% for no. Again, a swing to the yes side. 
if you can keep track of which of these debaters argued yes, <laughs> because I can't. Oh, yeah, actually, I've got four of them right there. On this round and on all the other rounds, those of you who argued yes, congratulations to you. And again, thank you for what you did for us tonight. It was terrific, and thank you for being a wonderful audience. Good night. Good night.